Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we provide the true story behind movies based on a true story. I've been taking a closer look at the data on who is listening to the show, and there is one city that has downloaded more episodes of the podcast than any other city on the planet, and that distinction goes to Grand Blank, Michigan. I have never been to Grand Blank, Michigan, and I don't know anyone from Grand Blank, Michigan. But I am very appreciative to the people of Grand Blank, Michigan, for the number of episodes they have downloaded. Grand Blank is a city that is in the suburb of Flint, Michigan. The city is 3.62 square miles and has a population of just over 8,000 people. They have downloaded one episode of the podcast more than any other, and that is the episode about the movie Cadillac Records, which I recorded with blues musician Joel Tarpinion. While I am extremely grateful that so many people are discovering chess records and the great artists which hail from that record label, I am quite perplexed as to why the majority of downloads for that episode are happening in this one small city in Michigan. For instance, for the month of March, that episode on Cadillac Records was downloaded 20 times. 17 of those downloads took place in Grand Blank, Michigan. If someone from Grand Blank, Michigan could reach out to me at our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com slash contact, and let me know what is going on out there, I will send you a Biopics Mostly Suck magnet. Today I am fortunate to be joined by John Helix, a local musician in the San Diego area. He is a huge fan of the movie Raging Bull. I found out during our discussion that he also has some boxing experience, and he has some interesting insight into why we need a person like Jake LaMotta. You can find John Helix on Facebook and Twitter at John Helix Official. Go out, show some love, because you know... With this whole COVID thing going on, musicians are having a rough time. So go out and take a look at his stuff. If you like it, hey, buy some of the music. Today, we will talk about the movie Raging Bull, the story of boxer Jake LaMotta that was directed by Martin Scorsese and stars Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Kathy Moriarty as Jake LaMotta's wife. Raging Bull currently has a rating of 8.2 out of 10 from the Internet Movie Database and ranks 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. How is Raging Bull as a movie? And how is it as a medium to document the history of Jake LaMotta? We will rate the movie as entertainment and as fact and give a score at the end of the episode. There will be spoilers in the discussion. If you're ready, let's get started. If not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. Because you do mixed martial arts, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you box as part of that, or did you box separate from that? Uh, I boxed in my early uh, early 20s, like late teens, for maybe two years, um, and then took a 10-year break and then got into mixed martial arts and jiu-jitsu. No kidding. I didn't know you box box. You mean like gentleman's boxing? You gloves and you wore the head thing and... Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Gentleman's boxing. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I, every time I think, I don't know, when I said that. The I, sweet I, science. I, I was thinking of like guys with big handlebar mustaches putting their arms out. and. But, oh, wait, like the character on Mike Tyson's Punch-Out? 
Remember that guy? <gasps> oh my! What was his name? Oh my God! Ball. Uh, oh, he was like a big Ukrainian can, or Russian guy or I something. Can see yeah, him. Oh yeah, my God. yeah. Like oh that my guy. God, that's so funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. In a way, I was yeah. thinking more like kind of old timey. Yeah. But yeah, so boxing, sport boxing, sport boxing. Yeah. Separate from mixed martial arts. Or separate. Something. Yeah. Just, just, just straight boxing, right? So, did you do this at a gym? Did you compete mm-hmm. or? No, just, um, just trained at a gym and sparring. No kidding. Yeah, was training for a, a match at one point and then. Decided against it. What made you decide against it? My my brain. I didn't I didn't feel like getting my my head pounded in. I sometimes sparring's one thing, a fight's another thing. Yeah, and I'm surprised that point of view doesn't deter more people from boxing. Because getting your head pounded in generally is is not a thing people want to experience. Yeah, and that's the thing is that it's like not it's not fun to get punched in the head or the face or the ear. But you get, I don't know, you get used to it after a while, if that makes sense. No, no. Well, you just, I don't know. That's the only way. They just tell you to, you know, you just, you get hit and you turn, shrug it off. Just turn, turn back. I don't know. I I know uh, Martin Scorsese is not a fan of boxing at all. And in fact, uh, when he was first exposed to it, when starting to make Raging Bull, he saw the bucket with the bloody sponge in it and he said you call this a sport and yeah I, i'm kind of with him on that i boxing isn't something i've ever gravitated to or well it's no I, I gravitated toward it when i was younger before mma came along once mma came along the game was over because to me boxing is i mean it's fun and i love it but it's not a let me put it this way i would love if, if it was a if, if we were just in a regular fight, I would love to fight a boxer. Why is that? I just drag him to the ground. Oh, and then do MMA shit on him, right? That's that's the whole thing is with boxing is they rely on it <clears throat> standing up. And then when you get into the clinch and there's dirty boxing, they break it up. MMA, none of that. It, they let it go. Well, yeah. You can do more damage. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And actually, you know, I mean, you think about it, it's more the gloves. You, you endure much more head damage in boxing than you do MMA. Really? Oh yeah. You, you get knocked out, but the thing is, you just you get knocked out rather than repeated head trauma from a glove, because gloves don't hurt that much when you get. I mean, unless someone's got really heavy hands. Yeah, but your brain's still jiggling inside. It's- that's the whole thing is that with boxing for twelve or in the past fifteen rounds, your brain's jiggling for those all those rounds. MMA, you get lit up, you're going yeah. down. Yeah, you're not going to sustain the same the same brain injury unless you. Get, I mean, unless like John Jones just clocks you, you know, across the temple or something. But even then, it's it's not the same as the brain damage that box, uh, boxers endure. Like you listen to George Foreman talk, or I mean, got some screws loose, man. But I wonder, you know, because we've uh, become more aware of the damage done to the brain with NFL players, yeah. Uh, why have we not seen the same outcomes with boxers? Well, it's not as consistent. You don't. I mean, mm, NFL players it. play once a week yeah. for whatever sixteen games. Boxers fight twice a year. No, but what I mean three. in the NFL, we're seeing problems with suicide, in particular. But yeah. I don't hear of a lot of boxers committing suicide. No, there have been a couple of cases of people going crackers, but it might be a a, a ratio thing. There might not be. As many boxers as they are, as there are, well, there probably aren't as many boxers as there are football players and yeah. all the people who grew up playing football. Yeah, that makes sense. And we're here to talk about one particular boxer, uh, Jake LaMotta, 
who was known as the Raging Bull. The Bronx Bull. Bronx Bull were his two nicknames. And uh, we're here to talk about the movie of the same name, Raging Bull, which stars Robert De Niro, directed by Martin Scorsese. And we're going to do what we usually do on the podcast. We're going to talk about the movie as a piece of entertainment, talk about the characters, talk about the presentation, and then we're going to switch over and we're going to talk about the true story behind this movie based on a true story, and we're going to find out what happened in real life. Are you ready, John? I'm ready. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about it. We'll start where we usually do, which is with the movie synopsis. And Raging Bull opens in 1964 when an aging and overweight former prize fighter, Jake LaMotta, is practicing a comedy routine. The movie flashes back to 1941 where LaMotta is in a boxing match against Jimmy Reeves and he suffers his first loss. Jake's brother and manager Joey discuss taking advantage of a mafia connection for a shot at the middleweight title. Jake, who is married, is introduced to Vicky, a 15-year-old, with whom he pursues a relationship. By 1945, Jake and Vicky are married. Jake is constantly worried about Vicky having feelings for other men, and he is abusive to her and to those men as a result of his worries. As a result of one of LaMotta's public attacks, he now has to take a dive in a fight for the Mafia in order to have a shot at the middleweight title. LaMotta's insecurities cause him to assume his brother has also had an affair with Vicky. He was equal opportunity in that regard. When confronted with the question, Joey refuses to answer and leaves. LaMotta confronts Vicky about Joey, and she sarcastically says that she slept with the entire neighborhood. LaMotta walks to Joey's house and attacks him in front of his wife and children. LaMotta is now estranged from Joey, and his career begins to decline, which culminates in him losing the title to Sugar Ray Robinson in 1951. In 1956, LaMotta moves his family to Miami and opens a nightclub. Vicky tells him she wants a divorce and full custody of their children. LaMotta is also arrested for introducing underage girls to men in his club. He went to jail in 1957 and was filled with sorrow and despair for his actions and his circumstances. In 1964, LaMotta returned to New York and asked Joey for his forgiveness. Joey grants it, but is elusive. The movie ends with LaMotta looking into a mirror and reciting the I could have been a contender scene from the movie On the Waterfront. So this movie, which came out in 1980, I know it's always been out there, always hailed as a masterpiece. But the first time I ever saw this movie was to prepare for this episode. Mm. It was just one of those things that's just been out there and known so much that I just didn't make time for it. Are you a Scorsese fan? I do like Scorsese, yeah. Mm. Goodfellas I like. Yeah. Uh, I even like some of his odder stuff. You ever see After Hours? No. With Griffin Dunn? No. It's basically a guy going through the party scene of 1970s New York. Whoa. It's a weird movie. It was done, I think, just after Raging Bull. Oh, that sounds cool. But it's an odd, quirky movie, but it's fantastic. Violent? There's a couple instances of violence, but no, it's not like a mob violence type of thing. No, but but it's really interesting to watch. I I, I think you dig it. I I think you should watch that one. So this film is black and white, episodic, sometimes confusing and dark. And doesn't have much of a soundtrack. And it seems that Scorsese took that approach directly from LaMotta's book. Listen to this. LaMotta wrote in his book, Sometimes at night, when I think back, I feel I'm looking at an old black and white movie of myself. 
Not a good movie either. Jerky, with gaps in it, a string of poorly lit sequences, some of them with no beginning and no end and no musical score. Were you familiar with this quote already? Yeah. Did you read Lamada's book? No. No, okay. No. So, yeah, it's interesting that there's that description from Lamada and then that approach taken by Scorsese, who Scorsese, by the way, was not a fan of doing this film. Yeah. Robert De Niro kind of convinced him to do it. And there's also a whole other story regarding Scorsese's health. Are you familiar with that? No. Apparently, Scorsese was in kind of a bad way and... Uh, it's been said that this movie helped save Scorsese. That's physically. interesting because it's a, I mean, it's a movie about attempted redemption, right? Oh, good point. I mean, good point. I mean, I've definitely read and heard analyses of this movie that uh, De Niro was essentially the, the the blank canvas for Scorsese to push himself through, mm. and he made himself that figure for Scorsese's demons to come through as a vehicle it's really interesting very interesting yeah and if this film is known for one thing it's de niro's physical change that took place during the production from a younger to an older jake lamada when in fighting shape de niro was weighing in at 160 pounds while filming this movie the production paused for four months the crew was paid for the entire time Good on Scorsese Absol- or whoever is who's in charge of the budget of a movie, the, the a producer. producer yeah, producers. okay. So they kept the crew. Good. They well, paid good. them yeah. for four months while De Niro was in France getting fat. Yep. Just what was he doing? Drinking, drinking wine and he eating cheese. He was going out to the best restaurants <laughs> and just living it up. And he came back and he'd increased his weight to two hundred and fifteen pounds. Now, quick note: De Niro is five ten in height. Yeah. So he's not a very tall guy. That's a lot of weight to put on that frame. And Scorsese said he was actually worried about the production when De Niro came back because he said De Niro sounded like him, meaning Scorsese, when he has an asthma attack. Just sitting there breathing. And and De Niro was talking about the rashes he would get on his legs because his legs were rubbing together. And it was just an incredible change. When De Niro did this, it was really unique and extreme. But we've had other actors since then who've taken that approach. Christian Bale, I think, The Machinist. Oh, that's a great film. Yeah. yeah. that's He lost a ton of weight Oh, for he that. got almost skeletal yeah. in that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but a number of uh, actors have done a similar thing. But there's a number of actors coming out now. I think Jared Leto as well for uh, Dallas Buyers Club did the oh, same thing. Yeah. Lost a lot of weight for that. Some actors are coming out now and saying, "You know, I've done it and it's not worth it. I won't put myself." I think Kilmer in did that it danger. for the Doors too. Yeah. He played this. You know, he yeah. played the 135 pound Morrison and then the the tank, Jimbo. Yeah, yeah. So to go to that extreme is really, really unhealthy to do to your body. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. But uh, it's interesting, the notion of gaining and losing weight, because that's that's a fighter's life. And, I mean, you know fighters cut down from, <clears throat> if you're fighting at 155, yeah. you're probably cutting down from 170 or 185. So you're probably at least in your training camp, and then your last week of dehydration you're you're shaving off 10 to 15 pounds at least but i mean you're 
that physical transformation is so unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we always make a big deal when male actors do it, but isn't that the life of an actress in Hollywood too? I mean, yeah. there, there's tons of stories related from actresses where they're told, well, okay, you'd be good for the role, but you need to lose yeah. this many pounds before yeah. you can get... Margaret Cho talks about it when oh, she did yeah. her show. She was told she had to lose weight in order to do the show. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the life of a boxer, but it's also the life of uh, actresses yeah. in Hollywood as well. Weight control. Yeah. But but we we laud male actors for doing it all when they do it for a role. We say, yeah. oh, it's great they did that. What measures they went to, and yeah. it's just expected of women. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree with that. I'm I don't know. I'm not I'm not particularly impressed by actors' physical transformations. No. Uh, so what? Yeah. I mean, good. And that, I mean, no no disrespect to the man, but <clears throat> and I mean anyone can gain forty pounds and. And lose it if you want, if you really want to. Losing it's the hard part. No, that is the hard G- part. But gaining if, it's easy. I'm just saying, if you if you want to gain 40 pounds and then drop back down to your weight, you can do it. Yeah, it doesn't take a a list Hollywood actor. No, but what he did with it was amazing. It, well, absolutely, in the way it, he the pre- transformation is, and the way he presented the uh, younger and older Lamada. Absolutely. Oh my God, just in- incredible. So, um. Tell, tell me your thoughts on Raging Bull. Why do you? Because you said earlier you would rate it very, very high. Yeah, I, I, I would give it a five. Yeah. And why is that? What is it about the movie that speaks to you? Mm, there's so much about it. What I like about Raging Bull, number one, is I, I love characters that you shouldn't feel pity for but that a movie somehow forces you to have some kind of, if not pity, at least some level of sympathy for this absolutely reprehensible character. That's, that's number one. Um, character wise in terms of his, his, his ethics and his, the way he goes about his existence. I think the deeper thing that's more interesting about Raging Bull is that it's so interesting to watch someone because we, we're so used to resolving our differences and working through problems with language. And for me, it's so interesting to watch someone who is incapable of that try to, and it's sad and it's true. This is part of what makes the tragedy of the film. Someone who is absolutely incapable of anything other than repeated utterances, who expresses himself or herself with fists or with physicality more on the level of, what we would call animalistic, not on the level of what we would call consciousness. To me, that's a fascinating character because it peels away layers of language that I think complicate very simple drives. You know what I mean? Attack, fight, flight, you know, hunger. What I mean, I I love watching the 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 id aspect of this thing and watching Lamada try to come to terms with what he cannot understand. That is a fascinating character to me. And, and I felt differently because again, I only saw that the movie this year. Yeah. So there's there's been a lot of build up for me. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's uh... Uh, and I have a hard time sympathizing with characters that just caused so much destruction mm-hmm. without an explanation of what's behind it. 
And for yeah. me, that's that's how Lamada was presented. Is you don't understand why he can only communicate physically. But there may not be a reason. There may not be. I mean, if he's just an asshole, you know. But that may not be <clears throat> assholery. That may be. You and I, we don't go through li- our lives pushing people around physically to get what we want because we have to. Right. We, I mean, we use words and reasoning mm-hmm. and. And I, I think there are people who don't operate on that level. And it's not an asshole thing. And it may be interpreted in language as asshole, but I just, they don't have that capacity. And True. they're still fully human and they're still fully capable of, of feeling everything. They just may not be, be able to express it or have a, the, the vehicle to, to be, peaceful or humane or any of that stuff. I mean, I, I don't ascribe it to being an asshole. Yeah. And, and I get what you're saying, but my method of communication by talking or reasoning doesn't cause a person damage physically mo- most of the time or, or damage. I mean, if someone just comes at me, right. It, it's going to make me think twice about them. But if I come up to you and say, hey, hey, John, right. you know, I, I, I didn't like this thing or, hey, I want to talk to you about something. Yeah. And we're both two reasonable people talking. Right. And we're going to walk out of that exchange more often than not going, oh, OK, I see his side. Yeah. But if I just come up and hit you or right. you just come up and hit me, I'm going to go, what the fuck? See, and to me, that's interesting. I think there are, again, and this is this is just from, from experience and just hang, hanging out hanging around gyms and hanging around people who, you know, either fight for a living or fight, you know, as a, as a lifestyle, mm-hmm. that's not how differences are settled. Is by reasoning or no, by, no. by reasoning. So to, to me, it's not a, it's not a matter of people have the choice to enter into dialogue. I mean, I think sometimes they do, but I think that certain people just don't and they, they, that's how they settle differences. Mm-hmm. It's physical. It's on a, it's on an, more animal level, but that's not re- that doesn't reduce the person to me. Hmm. It's just a different mode of being. Well, I guess if you're ready for that approach to be taken with you, I'm not saying I want to be on the receiving end of it. <laughs> 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 but I am saying hmm. that I, to me, Lamada is as the monster that he is. He's also deeply pitiable because of his own his inability to understand his own circumstances and to articulate his own circumstances and to the guy is a caged animal. Mm -hmm. Let him loose in society. That's what you get. I don't hold a lot of judgment against him for, I mean, for, for a lot of, a lot of his misdeeds, because I, I simply think that he's, that's the only way he knows how to express them. Well, and they most definitely come out of insecurity. Oh, absolutely. Especially everything that happened with Vicky. Absolutely. In the film. But even so, they can be overcome if you want to. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, have you, I mean, have you ever met someone who is just purely incapable of reason and will resolve whatever difference it's only physical you can't talk to the person about it in any intelligent way and i don't mean that as a, as a knock against mm-hmm. you know have you ever come across that oh absolutely yes so uh, to to me it's not a choice for a lot of people like that 
Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I just don't sympathize with people who take that approach. But see, I don't think they take that approach. I think it's innate. That's innate? Yeah. I think it's, I think it's baked in. So are you saying that you and I, the reasoning beings, are the anomalies to the natural order? No, I'm saying that they are the anomalies. Well, originally, yes, but now I'm saying that the fighters of the world and those who resolve mm-hmm. their differences, at least you know, in the quote-unquote civilized West, that resolve their differences not through violence but through reason, discourse, or persuasion – I think that's become our mode of communication. And so we see something like Raging Bull and we go, oh, my God, what a monster. How incredibly violent. Mm -hmm. But that's the history of the fucking world, man. And this is these are recent consciousness and this is this is recent stuff in human history. So to me, Lamada is this really interesting figure kind of trapped between contemporary humanity and, and and animal behavior. Yeah. So that's that to me that gives he's rich for for pity and I just feel so bad for him when I watch that film. Interesting. Yeah. And you know maybe I need to go back and rewatch it. Maybe uh one viewing after it came out many many or a few decades ago isn't enough to appropriately judge it. And I wanted to before we talked about it today. So uh yeah, I I think that's something I I need to put on my schedule. Is to go back and rewatch Raging Bull. It's a good one. I was at a thing on Raging Bull, and there's a really interesting question posed. So you're talking about insecurity, and the question that was posed was really interesting. And it was about insecurity. question went like this. Would you rather live under the illusion that someone is cheating on you, and they aren't? Or would you rather live under the illusion that someone is not cheating on you, and they are? And so... With Lamada, obviously, he's the, the former, right? Or, no, yeah, that, that they aren't cheating on you. And, or, that they aren't cheating on you, but you think they are. It's a really interesting choice. What would you take on that? Uh, in Lamada's case, he was cheating on other people as well. Sure. So, but we're talking he, about his insecurity, yeah, ex- right? Exactly. But yeah. is his insecurity built on his own actions? In other words, yeah. if I'm doing this, right. then someone else must be doing it to me. Because he has to know that cheating on people he's with is wrong. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he does. But on, even on, he's still doing it. Of course. And he's going to assume Vicky's doing it to him. Of course he's going to assume it. But the thing is, is, she doesn't make the same, she doesn't fall into the same trap. He falls into the trap. And he's the central focus yeah, I mean, I suppose. I think it's a really interesting, again, and I think it speaks to his inability to, I mean, that paranoia and that insecurity is, it just poisons his, mm-hmm. it, it poisons the film, it poisons his career, it poisons his life. Yeah. Eats him to, the, to his, it's like a fellow or something. It's crazy. And, and in real life it did. And yeah. he, he says that the movie was the best thing that happened to him and it turned his life around. And at a screening of the film, he turned to Vicky because he was unhappy with his portrayal of how violent he was showing his being. And he turned to her and said, was I that bad? And her answer was, you were worse. So, um, you know, I I think that's really interesting because because what a way to come to an epiphany on such a public (laughs) level. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? <laughs> you know, it's not just someone pulling you aside and saying, uh, uh, Jake, you, uh, uh, look here. Yeah. You, you, you've really kind of been. You a killed dick. a guy. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. You, you, you kind of did some damage. Yeah. Here. Instead, it's now up there for all the world to see. And now you're coming to terms with it and saying, oh, that's what I did. Yeah. Not only am I realizing it, but now everyone else does. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really interesting antecedent to uh, Lamada, or really any fighter like him, and that's Achilles, right, in the Iliad. And the interesting thing about this, you need people like Jake Lamada. You need people like Achilles. This is the double-edged sword of this. Mm-hmm. Who's going to fight your wars? Yes, I, I You agree. need killers. Mm-hmm. You need people who don't think, and and I don't mean that in the sense of don't have cognition, but what I mean is people who do not hesitate when trouble comes their way, you need those people to fight your wars for you, to fight your battles for you, if you can't fight them yourself. I would agree with that. Because so what do you do with that person? In the meantime? Yep, you put them in a boxing ring. Oh. You put them on a football team. Oh, I mean, this this goes way back to Homer, and I mean, this is like Platonic stuff. But how do you keep warriors in check? And this is Raging Bull is the story of a warrior in contemporary society. In that context, I think you have just changed my point of view of the film. Hmm. Yes. Uh, so, as a movie, what would you score Raging Bull at? Five out of five. Five out of five. You know what? I think you brought me there, John. Wow. You brought me. Oh, my God. Woo! Can I get a hallelujah? There you go. Hallelujah. I, I would agree. Five out of five, especially with the assessment you just gave and the context that you put it in. Well, I think that's the thing with the tragedy, you know? There's, there, there, there are people who are born to do things and born to behave in a particular way and born to particular actions and they can be necessary and sometimes are well let's go ahead and talk about the true story behind this movie based on a true story in this portion of the podcast we'll talk about how the facts were presented in the film and the historical and factual accuracy of each item we will rank it between one and five for truthfulness at the end, give a letter grade A through F, and we'll rate the movie based on the average of the accuracy of the historical elements. So let's get started. We're going to start with the first fight against Jimmy Reeves, where he takes a lot of brutal punches while staying upright. And the sound effects, yeah. by the way, in this movie, when it comes to the punches, which was a lot of melons being hit, yeah. is what it was. But in the film, this is the first fight where he fought, where Jake LaMotta fought for longer than six rounds. So what really happened? What really happened is pretty much exactly what's presented in the movie. LaMotta's first bout was against Jimmy Reeves, and he was known for his ability to stay on his feet while taking a beating. You didn't get me down. So that's on the mark there. Yeah. I think that's an A there yeah. on that one. Yeah. So let's talk about Joey. Uh, What was in the movie was Joey was Jake's manager and confidant. They argue about women, the mob, the jealousy, breakup, and they reconcile. So what really happened? Joey in the movie is a composite character. He is 20% Joey and 80% Pete Petrella, who is (laughs) LaMotta's friend. According to LaMotta in his biography, 
all of those things, including the breakup and reconciliation with Joey in the movie, all happened with Petrella. Joey was LaMotta's manager on paper in real life. Which brings us to Vicky, because Joey introduces Jake to Vicky at a community pool, and Vicky is a 15-year-old who becomes Jake's second wife. So what really happened regarding Vicky? Uh, Joey actually made the introduction of Vicky to Jake while Jake was talking to two reporters after a workout. Vicky was really 15, and she married Jake three months after they met to become his second wife. After she divorced him, Jake went on to marry wives three, four, five, six, and seven, and Vicky used her fame from the movie to do a Playboy pictorial and appeared in the magazine at the age of 51 in the November 1981 issue. At that time, she was the oldest Playboy pinup. Wow. At the age of 51. After the divorce, she also remained friends with Jake and talked to him on the phone weekly. And she considers him to be, quote, an uncle. She says, quote, I am the woman of his life, and he loves me. He's family. And I wonder, because you made the case for you, you need people in this world who can fight. They need You keep them contained in football or in a cage or, or something where they can use their skill set. But, but I wonder about women like Vicky. I mean, because that's a lot of abuse to go through. Is that just typical abusive relationship? I don't know. You know? So it's a. I mean, it's territory I don't want to tread into too, yeah. too much here. Yeah. But it's. I mean, it's well, it's definitely an abusive relationship. I don't know about what a typical abusive relationship is, but yeah. I think it just. I, I think it just runs along the same lines. That here, this this is a guy who is overtaken and overcome and possessed by his own mm-hmm. insecurities and fantasies and that's how he expresses himself yep. and yeah she takes she takes the the brunt of it so it seems what was presented in the movie was very much what happened in real life as well so far raging bull is tracking pretty close to the historical accuracy way to go scorsese i had a friend in college who's favorite director was Scorsese and I, I think I had seen like one movie and he was so upset that I'd only seen one Scorsese movie. Which was, Scorsese movie? I think it was um Gangs of New York, was that Oh that's a great yeah. one. Oh. Was that a Scors- Gang- yeah. And um also one we should do on this podcast. Oh yeah because be- Bill the Butcher was real. Okay. And five points is all real. Yeah. So I was inundated with Mean Streets and, you know, the rest after that. And he was was happy after I watched those movies. But he just worshipped Scorsese. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So let's go ahead and talk about the mob. The local mob boss, Tommy Como, (laughs) is played by Nicholas Colasanto. And I just, I am so familiar with Nicholas Colasanto as coach. You can't. On Cheers. But I had a hard time watching him say the word fuck. <laughs> I just, I, I couldn't get it out of my head. Because uh, I, I, I haven't seen him as anything other than coach yeah. at all. And he's so lovable and cheers. Oh, my God. He was just, 
he was so sweet in oh, Cheers. Yeah. Oh, oh that's God. funny. I didn't oh. made that connection. <laughs> oh my God! But yes, I, I couldn't. Yeah, I had a hard time watching Coach do those things. All right. and, but again, first look, I need to go back and rewatch it. So Tommy Como meets with Joey and says that Jake will not get a shot at the title, quote, without us. Joey tells Jake, quote, they want you to do the old flip-flop for them. Let's see what really happened. Lamada wrote in his book and testified that he did throw his fight against Billy Fox at Madison Square Garden on November 14th. 1947. He also admitted that he did it in order to get a shot at the title with the help of the mob. The fight happened in real life in pretty much the same ridiculous way it happens in the movie. Jake floundered on the ropes but refused to go down until the referee stopped the fight in the fourth round. LaMotta wrote in his book, and, and this is pretty funny here, LaMotta wrote, quote, Fox can't even look good. The first round, a couple of belts to the head. I see a glassy look coming over his eyes. Jesus Christ, a couple of jabs and he's going to fall down? I began to panic a little. I was supposed to be throwing a fight to this guy, and it looked like I was going to be holding him up on his feet. By the fourth round, if there was anybody in the garden who didn't know what was happening, he must have been dead drunk. That's great. Oh, my God. I couldn't imagine you're there to throw a fight. And then the fear that comes in your eyes when you go, oh, shit, this guy's going to go down. Yeah. <laughs> What's they going to do? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. You ever seen a fight thrown? No. Have you? It's awful. When did you, when did you see a fight? In the 90s in Vegas. It was awful. And it was... It was well, uh, Oh, it was at the MGM or no, it was, it was either at the MGM or Caesars. Got nosebleed tickets. John Ruiz against, I'm trying to remember, but oh my God, someone took a dive. It was ridiculous. And there, I, there was a near riot in the place. Those were like $150 tickets. So you were in the nosebleeds. Oh, it was 150 And you, you could tell from the nosebleeds the guy took a dive? They had the big screen tip. Ah, yeah. There you go. It was a, so what happened? How was it obvious? What did you see? He so there there was it happened twice. The ref warned the fighter not to go down, and then there was a low blow, and the, I can't remember which fighter it was, but the fighter went down on a knee and refused to come back up. Oh, no and the place just about erupted. It was it was the main event. Oh, it was like round four. I think stopped to go home. What the fuck? We can't, what are you talking about? When we go to the UFC fights, man, yeah. we want to sit in the front row because we want to get blood splattered on us. Yeah. You know, you can stop a fight. Come on, you don't go down. So he just took a knee. It was bizarre. It was so bizarre. He took it. They didn't even throw in it a was, towel. It was. I don't know if the towel was thrown, but it oh. was just basically a blow and then the knee and then ref called it and it was like whack. What the hell? Yeah, it was horrible. No, I I, I have never seen that. Yeah. I, I haven't been to a boxing match. I've They're boring. Yeah. Yeah, MMA fights are fun. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to Muay Thai in Thailand. Ooh, that's exciting. That is that that's a thing. That's that's oh, a lot of fun to go yeah. to. That's really interesting. Uh Lamada served his suspension for throwing the fight against Fox and gets a shot at the middleweight title against Marcel Serdan. He dominates the fight, and Marcel is unable to continue after the ninth round. LaMotta is declared the winner by TKO, and this is in the film that this is presented. What really happened? What I found interesting is 
some interesting stuff about Marcel Sardin. Oh. Which you may not know yet. According to sports writer Red Smith, here's what actually happened at the fight. He said, actually, there was nothing to suggest that LaMotta might win until Sardin tore the suprapinatus muscle in his right shoulder, rendering that arm useless. With only his left, he fought on until the corner induced him to accept the inevitable and save himself for another fight. Meanwhile, LaMotta was having hell's own time beating one side of Serdan. It's a little different than what's in the movie. And that's Serdan's account? No, that is uh, oh, the sports, sports writer, writer Red yeah. Smith's account. The contract between LaMotta and Serdan stipulated a rematch. And Serdan was ready to attend training camp and prepare for the fight. However, he was married with three children in France and having an affair with singer Edith Piaf, <laughs> who Serdan was the love of Piaf's life. On the way to the training camp, he decided to stop in New York and visit Piaf, but his Air France flight crashed in the Azores, killing 11 crew members and 37 passengers. Piaf had written one of her most famous songs, Hymn à l'amour, for Serdan, who was the love of her life. She first performed the song in September of 1949. He died in October of 49. And she released the song as the B-side to Livia Rose ah. in 1950. Wow. Yeah, interesting, mm-hmm. huh? Edith Piaf, wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm picturing Sir Dan still trying to fight the guy with only his left arm. Yeah. And Lamotta's still having a hard time. Yeah. That, that sounds almost as comical as a, a guy about to go down who you're supposed to throw a fight for. Yeah. Yeah. So LaMotta had some interesting matches take place there. Uh, let's talk about LaMotta's post-boxing career, because this is something that's shown for a good portion of the film, at the beginning and in the third act. Yeah. Uh, and in the movie, LaMotta moved to Miami and opened a nightclub and was arrested for serving as a pimp for a 14-year-old girl. He was found guilty and was thrown in the hole. After serving time, he's shown making a living doing a stand-up act at nightclubs. What really happened was LaMotta was found guilty of a betting prostitution and served six months in jail and paid a $500 fine. He spent his time in the hole hitting the wall, literally and figuratively. In his book, he says, The wall closest to me became the whole stinking world. I doubled my fist tight and lashed out at it, at them. I just kept on doing it, hitting a wall that was about as thinking and as feeling as the world. After he was released from jail, Lamada embarked on a career in showbiz. He played the bartender in the Paul Newman movie The Hustler, where Paul Newman plays a pool player. He played various thugs in the series Car 54, Where Are You? And he also played an uncredited gangster in the movie New Jack City. <laughs> New Jack City. I remember that. That's 1991. Yes. Jake Lamotta's in it. Is Ice T? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Jake Lamotta's in it. Okay. Uh, he was also featured in the video for Downtown Train by Tom Waits. And if you want to see that video, we're going to have it on the episode page for this at our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com. So let's go ahead and take a look at how Raging Bull did. Uh, it seems for most of it, they were on the mark about what happened. Mm-hmm. A few small liberties taking place in in terms of the Sudan fight. But yeah. otherwise, there seemed to be very few liberties taken other than Joey being a composite character. 
Yeah. So on a rate of A through F, what would you give Raging Bull? Sounds pretty good. A solid A minus. Solid A minus. Well, let's go a solid letter here. A or B? Oh, I did B. Okay. I'll give a B as well. Simply because of the composite character. And I think to date, this is the movie that's probably gotten the, the highest letter grade. Yeah. Of any film based on a true story. So good for Raging Bull, good for Scorsese. Shows you can make an acclaimed film that uh, sticks to the truth. Yeah. Although what's interesting is this film did not do that well when it came out. It was made for a budget of $23 million, and it made eighteen. Mm. So the public wasn't quite on board. It got a lot of critical praise. Yeah. But uh, the When pu- did it start gathering its popular steam? Do we know that? I think it probably had to do with the more it was lauded, the more it showed mm. up on 10 best lists. Mm. It just kind of grew. So there we go. Raging Bull gets a B on biopics mostly suck. One of your favorite movies. Yeah, one of my favorite movies. Favorite characters. Thank you for doing this, John. Absolutely. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere. Literally. Literally everywhere. You can find all of the sources we used to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash ragingbull. I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. And for Raging Bull, I have a video from Tom Waits of his song Downtown Train. And the video stars Jake LaMotta. How are we doing with this project? Send us some feedback through the website, biopicsmostlysuck.com slash contact, and you can recommend which movie you would like for us to use for a future episode, and we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone. <laughs>